Hello, and welcome to Controversies in Church History. My name is Derek Taylor, your host for this podcast on controversial events, ideas, and people in the history of the Catholic Church, the Communion of Rome. Thank you for listening again to our podcast. Remember that you can find us on the web, uh, churchhistories.com. I have a blog there set up for the podcast. You can stay in touch, um, get in, uh, see what updates are coming, new episodes. Uh, I also have a blog, which I'll post articles, links to articles that get published elsewhere occasionally. So stuff on history, topics in the church. You can also find us on social media. Um, Facebook page is very active, so go there if you want to find out more. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter. I've given up Twitter for, for Lent, so maybe not there. Uh, and a few other places as well. You can also check out our YouTube channel, which for the most part, I just post the podcast. Occasionally, I'll post it with some actual more content in the in the actual video. But you can find us there as well. And so, yeah, if you go there, you can find all of our all of my podcasts there, including the most recent one, which was on the Union of Brest and the Ukrainian Catholic Church. Since that's an ongoing topic today, obviously, with the, the war and the invasion there, as well as a recent um, my recent series on liberation theology. So that's all available. Churchhistories.com, uh, churchcontroversy.com, churchcontroversies.com. And uh, you can find that stuff there or on any sort of uh, podcast platform you choose, Anchor, iTunes, Spotify, etc., etc. So do check us out on the web. All right. So this episode begins our next series in uh, in uh, on the next topic and next controversial topic in, in Catholic history, which is going to be Catholic liberalism. Now, I need to do some explaining, and this first episode is going to be an explainer. So we're not actually getting too much history here to begin with. But uh, when I say Catholic liberalism, I don't mean uh, contemporary Catholic liberalism. I know that's confusing, but uh, we're talking about, in this instance, a movement uh, within the church, within the Catholic church, that had its origins in the French Revolution and the church's reaction to it in early 19th century France, the early 1800s. And this movement will spread different forms of a kind of a rise elsewhere uh, throughout Europe in the 19th century and, and in the United States. And this movement, which is kind of diffuse, it's both sort of a, it's an ecclesial movement. It's also kind of a theological movement. It's more of a, what you'd call a church pressure group it's a bad term anyway something like that but this movement which arose in the early uh, in the 19th century is in fact the ancestor of the liberal catholicism that you're probably more familiar with now i need to make clear when i say ancestor they're still different in many ways as you'll see i'm going to describe it here in a second but um when you think of you know liberal catholics i mostly have an american audience here you probably think of catholics in public life who defy church teachings. We have a president, the United States, Joe Biden, openly rejects the church's teaching on, on abortion. Um, the, I believe she's still the Speaker of the House of Representatives. Nancy Pelosi does likewise. Or clergy or bishops who openly reject certain parts of church teaching 
think of Father James Martin, people like that. That's probably what came to mind when I said that. There is a connection there, but especially, again, I mentioned their abortion. All those issues are a post-1960s thing. So get that out of your mind for a second when you think about Catholic liberals and what we're talking about here. And I also have to make some distinctions here because the term liberalism has a lot more meanings than just that, obviously. Liberalism is a philosophy. You know, this is John Stuart Mill, if you know what that is, sort of probably throw utilitarianism into that mix. Uh, political parties in the 19th century uh, were here was a liberal party in Great Britain. There's still today a liberal party in uh, in. Uh, in Australia. Uh, but the difference is, and this I guess for my American audience, we say liberal, we think we identify that with the left part of the political spectrum. And that's kind of not the case. Uh, liberal means what it recently meant still in the Republican Party of the United States, small government, low tax, individualism, that sort of thing as a political movement which it still is in Australia. That's what their, that's what their brand, that's what their, that ideological spectrum means there. It's the labor parties, the more the left, more status, that sort of thing. But that's not what we're talking about here. Although the philosophy, as you'll see a little bit, we'll have to talk a little bit in the course of the series, somewhat related to Catholic liberalism. We're talking about liberalism in a religious sense. Now that's kind of a hard thing to to pin down because quite frankly liberalism there's really no singular definition i think you can have of this partly because religion is notoriously difficult to define but even liberalism is even more hard to define um and and of course liberalism my larger point here is not merely a thing within the catholic church obviously uh there's a liberal protestant movement definitely in in the 19th century and through to the day so uh, i'm focusing fairly narrowly on the catholic part but like those other versions I talked about it, it has this, this one general thing in common. They're all mostly about being free from something. Liberal means free. And that's one of the things that Catholic liberalism in the 19th century definitely um, characterized it. But it also helps explain why Catholic liberalism, liberalism as you will see, includes several possibly fairly contradictory elements because it doesn't really necessarily have a singular positive program now uh, having said all of that you can can kind of give a broad definition in what the theological tendency of this movement was uh, the new catholic encyclopedia actually taking this definition here is that basically liberalism as in theological terms is a form of naturalism that seeks to emancipate people from supernatural demands and by naturalism i mean you know it could be a whole, whole host of things it could be you know reason in place of faith it could be you know uh the will being freed from you know religious obligations passions being freed from constraints based on supernatural demands it can take diff different forms that way in its earliest phase however and we'll get to this in a couple episodes catholic liberalism was a movement to basically accept the modern separation of church and state and convince church leaders to give up its social political and legal legal privileges particularly in france this 
France. In France, um, in the 19th century, it begins there. Uh, the man uh, who we'll talk about, and big influential, the most important name you could take out of this, is the Abbe de Lamanet. Uh, Lamanet is the, the sort of godfather of Catholic liberalism. And yet it branches out from there. And over time, uh, the various liberal Catholic writers, the initiatives they have, will include things like rejection of papal infallibility, once it becomes defined after 1870, or at least very extreme discomfort with it in certain circumstances. They don't all agree on everything to these Catholic liberals. Um, things like academic freedom from church authority for Catholic theologians. That would be something they, they demand. Uh, seeking to replace uh, scholasticism with some sort of modern philosophy, particularly as a basis for, you know, uh, clerical education. These will all be things that get embraced by Catholic liberals in the 19th century. And if you've taken, if you've read, if you've uh, listened to my, my podcast slash talk on modernism, all this should sound kind of familiar to you. Liberalism is one of the main streams of thinking and practice that feed into that movement at the beginning of the 20th century. So we're going up to about 1900, end of the 19th century here, and the people we're going to talk about. Now, that's the sort of theological definition of what we mean by Catholic liberalism. My take on this, my way I would define liberalism, and I think you can say this about the Catholic liberals of the 19th century and ours today, is that it's uh, liberals are a movement or a group of people who want the church to jettison this or that teaching, this or that practice, this or that, you name it. And they want the church to get rid of something in order to come to terms with the modern world or to get people to come back into the church. The idea is, you know, there are these things in Catholicism that you know, self-consciously modern people don't like. If we just get rid of them, we can we can uh, get people to embrace the church again. That's the way I would define it. Or this is a definition I I, uh, I uh, I'm stealing from Joseph Shaw, who is the uh, head of the Latin Mass Society of the UK, very bright guy. Uh, he mentioned that liberals are are people who, um, yeah, they want people the church to alter its teachings in order to placate a hostile secular world which threatens it so one of the two reasons basically will work either you think a the church will automatically flourish if we just get rid of you know xyz lots of things they want to get rid of or we need to do that make an accommodation otherwise the secular state will crush us in essence that's really what liberalism to me is all about to me it is not primarily if you want to put it this way, an intellectual thing. It's not driven by intellectual ideas. That's not driven by the idea that well, this one idea we have is totally true. It's driven by really an apologetic need, a need to make the faith seem convincing to people in the modern world, which again, I think is what feeds into modernism. It's the same thing, I think, in a lot of ways. Uh, and so it, it stems from that. And especially in, as you're going to see, the situation into which the church finds itself after the French Revolution is going to be crucial to understand the origins of this. Because, first of all, the church really was <laughs> threatened by the state to a certain degree uh, after the revolution. Had not been threatened, had been basically, you know, 
they've tried to destroy it, in fact, in, in certain ways. But it's about that. It's about, you know, um, trying to defend the church against that sort of thing, at least in part, I think. And so uh, um, one last thing to note about this, this definition of Catholic liberalism. Uh, I should stress something here. Sometimes you'll get critics of it, especially in the 19th century, but today as well, who will, you know, they'll state that the liberals are people whose goal is absolute freedom from restraint. And I have to say again, that's that's not really that's not really accurate. Uh, this is again Joseph Shaw actually mentioned this, and I agree with this. Most liberals back then, most liberals today, are actually fairly earnest believers who don't want don't really self consciously reject the faith. They sincerely want the church to uh, to flourish. The problem is they adopt erroneous ideas or practices or heretical ideas and practices in pursuit of this goal. And as you're going to see, that's what happens with liberalism in the 19th century. Now, I know I just dropped a lot of that on you. A lot of words have more words, unfortunately. But I want to I want to take the time to articulate a few ideas that are key to this history I'm about to relate to you in the coming episodes um, that are associated with these liberal thinkers. And the first of these is uh, voluntarism. Voluntarism, uh, in the sense I mean it, I'm taking it here, doesn't have anything to do with like volunteering for charity. It means, because the Latin word voluntas means will, it means an emphasis on the will, either in philosophy or theology. It means the idea that the will is the determining faculty of the human person, or even of God. And meaning that you're not primarily a, a rational creature, you're primarily determined by your will and how strong your will is. Ergo, God is also defined by his will in theology. And this can also take the form in theology of an idea of the idea that, or the belief that uh, the, the um, process of knowing God is primarily intuitive or non-rational, right? In other words, you don't reason your way to the existence of God. You feel your way there. As Pascal said, the heart has reasons that reason knows not of, right? It's not a rational thing. It's a matter of the will, therefore love. Conversely, the idea that God is primarily defined by his will uh, can be expressed in those same terms. God is love. Uh, now, of course, Catholic, it's in scripture, it's in tradition. God is both love and he's both logos. He's both, he's both actually. But some people want to emphasize one to the exclusion of the other. Some people that emphasize reason are called intellectualists. Uh, they have an intellectual approach to God. Others take this voluntaristic approach. This isn't, by the way, in any sense, bad in of itself, but it can be taken to extremes, as you will see. So that's the first term, voluntarism. The second one you need to know, and again, if you, this is familiar to all of you, I apologize. I'm trying to reach as many people as possible. But I think you need to, to hear, uh, hear this stuff and, and get it in your minds when you talk about these thinkers. Uh, the next term is ultramontanism. And the word ultramontane means beyond the mountains, literally. And it means to appeal to the to, to the authority beyond the Alps, which is the papacy. Uh, ultramontanes are a group of people in the 19th century church, clergy, laymen, who really exalt papal authority in response to national conceptions of the church in France and Germany. I mean, within the Catholic Church, who wanted a more national you know, they wanted more national autonomy for their church. 
And so these people oppose them by really exalting the authority of the papacy. And this stems from an emphasis that goes back to the Council of Trent and afterwards when, in response to the Reformation, uh, you know, theologians, apologists of the Catholic Church uh, upheld the Pope as the one and only center of church unity. Uh, basically, you know, making unity with him identical. As long as you're with the Pope, you're okay. Uh, all of which gets exacerbated massively by the revolutionary, revolutionary upheavals in Europe after 1789. And so you're going to see an uptick in this. And one thing I this may sound confusing. This is why I mentioned liberals not having necessarily one singular coherent intellectual program is that liberals in the 19th century, a lot of them were ultramontanists, at least before Vatican I. Um, Although after Vatican II as well, I mean, after Vatican II, after Vatican I as well, but uh, a lot of them uh, wanted to separate church and state primarily to um, uphold an ultramontane idea of the papacy. So they were opposed to a state church, a lot of them. So they weren't Gallicans. They didn't have national aspirations for a national church. I mention this because, again, in our minds, again, if you're thinking of like liberals, Today, liberal Catholics, you think, well, they don't like authority. They're, they're against the Pope. That's not true at all. Um, these liberals, uh, they're fine with authority as long as it agrees with them. Uh, and this was the same thing, by the way, after Vatican II. Paul VI was a more progressive Pope. You know, they, they had no problem with a Pope uh, telling them to do, telling people what to do and using his authority. Uh, they're not opposed to authority per se. And this is kind of related to another set of ideas that uh, are important for understanding Catholic liberalism. And this one idea is called uh, fideism, or fideism, I don't know how you pronounce it. Um, this comes from the Latin word fides, faith. And this idea is the idea that uh, faith is essential for knowledge or for coming to a certitude of truth about basic things like God's existence, immortality of the soul. Uh, a fideist is someone who believes these things can't be proved by reason. You can't prove God exists by reason alone. You need to sort of intuit it, right? Or have faith uh, in some sort of non-rational way. Or has to be, more, more specifically, has to be taken on some type of authority. Uh, in a more specific theological sense, this is the idea that we only have knowledge of basic truths like that only through revelation. So fideism is an idea that, and this is the point here, is that takes a really low view of human reason and says you can't, you know, well, of course you can't prove the existence of God, but it all comes back to faith. Uh, and so it, it accepts a sort of weakening, a sort of skepticism about uh, reason in regards to religion and religious knowledge. Closely related to this is a doctrine that a lot of these liberals will espouse, especially Lamanet. He's sort of the, the origins of a lot of this. Um, is something called traditionalism. And this may sound confusing because I probably have some people who call themselves traditionalists listening to this. Uh, but traditionalism is a doctrine that metaphysical or moral truths can only be known through revelation as passed on through the oral, oral and written tradition of the Catholic Church. Uh, again, in the same way that fideism in general accepts a sort of skepticism about reason in regards to religion. Traditionalism makes it much more specific. And I mentioned both of these things, by the way, fideism and traditionalism were condemned 
by the church in the 19th century, as was liberalism in several forms, not voluntarism or ultimatumism. So there's a lot of ideas slurping around here. But those are the, the four basically you have to keep in mind. And we'll go back and listen to this when you go to some of the other episodes. I'm going to mention this stuff in passing and not explain it. So that's the reason I'm going to do this here. And finally, uh, just a final note on anti-liberalism, because there is a response to this in the 19th century. Uh, a reaction naturally sets in against it, and especially among the neo-scholastic thinkers in Rome and elsewhere, there was a lot of pushback against it. In 1886, a Spanish priest published a book called Liberalism is a Sin, <laughs> and went through and tried to examine all the ways in which uh, liberalism is wrong. A, uh, an esteemed uh, scholastic theologian named Louis Biot um, spent several parts of his larger works arguing against liberal ideas in the church. Uh, as well, and probably even more important, I think, for a popular understanding of, of liberalism, are the apologists who attack them. And you have a lot of them. Um, people like, and I think I'm pronouncing this name the right way, Louis Vuillot. Uh, Vuio, not Bio, but Vuio, who was this very, I mentioned some of the people who were ultramontanes, took a really, really, really exaggerated view of papal authority. Well, Louis Vuio is one of those. Uh, he was a newspaper guy, a writer, and um, he, he massively basically tar anybody who disagreed with him as being a sort of heretic. And so there's this uh, natural reaction, which I should mention is not necessarily all that healthy where you exalt the authority of the papacy to the nth degree. I say this because I'm not going to spend much time on them in this series. We're mostly going to focus narrowly on, on these liberal thinkers. But they're there and they're important because they definitely, their ideas are shaped, they're, they're shaped in conflict with each other, whether these thinkers' ideas are. And in fact, uh, I should also mention, crucially, that these ideas I just listed, uh, ultramontanism, voluntarism, um, fideism, traditionalism, they are not the unique property of Catholic liberals in the 19th century. Some of these reactionary thinkers I'm mentioning here, anti-liberals, also will share some of these ideas. So again, don't think that, you know, one of these things sort of absolutely identifies a Catholic liberal. It doesn't. One last thing to keep in mind is I've, I've said that I think Catholic liberalism was and still is a response to you know, changes in modern society and as a way of trying to trying to uh, overcome um, the church's position, which is weakened after the revolutions of the 19th century. And I point this out because virtually no one thought that nothing should be altered uh, in the church in the 19th century in response to those upheavals. Most people thought something needed to be changed, and they did. The way the Vatican ultimately goes along, Vatican and the more uh, the powers that be eventually go along with it, they reject liberalism. They still modernize the church in their own way, just not in the way that liberals wanted to. Uh, the question, of course, was what doctrines, what practices, what things were off limits from these changes? And this is where you get, because I say this because, again, you should not think of every person I'm going to talk about in this series as being 
automatically heretics or anything like that. Most of them don't don't um, are, are still Catholics in good standing at their death. A few of them leave the church. Two of them in particular. We'll get to them. Lamanet is one of them. But most of them don't. Most of them seriously want to help the church and think they are doing this. I mention this because again, I mentioned how you know sometimes within a rhetorical debate you get sort of carried away by your rhetoric. You're going to have a lot of defenders, anti-liberal defenders, uh, you know, defending against some of the you know more erroneous things liberals uh, want from the church um, by defending things like the temporal power of the papacy. Not just as a sort of expedient thing that maybe was still a good thing, but as if they were irre irreformable in and of themselves, which is not true, by the way. <laughs> the temporal power of the papacy is not necessary for him to 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 um, to uh, carry out his office. It's not de fide. I mean, he doesn't have to have the papal states. Obviously, if he didn't, he'd be gone already because the papal states have been gone for a long time. And, and I say this because again, you're going to get this sort of push-pull as a result. Uh, and it always happens in these polemics. People naturally ratchet up their rhetoric and I think go beyond where they initially meant to go. And that's clearly going to be the case for people uh, like some of these Catholic liberals in the 19th century. So uh, to recap, um, liberal Catholic liberalism is a movement within the church in the 19th century, um, characterized by a sort of naturalism, which wants to sort of um, weaken or get rid of supernatural demands uh, for the purpose of trying to make the Catholic Church more acceptable, more um, credible in the eyes of the modern world. And so next time, uh, we're going to do a little background before we get into the actual movement itself. We're going to talk about the French Revolution and its legacy, the what it did, the forces it set loose, and the ideas are going to feed into uh, the life and work of the Abbe de la Menée, who, as I said before, is the key figure in all of this. So, thank you guys again for listening. Uh, I'll see you next time. Again, if you uh, like what you heard, please go subscribe to us on Anchor or iTunes, whatever uh, platform you listen to us on. Uh, go check out our website, churchconservations.com. Uh, go to like our page on Facebook uh, and uh, follow us on Twitter. And everywhere else you can find. Oh, yes, YouTube as well. Go listen, subscribe to us on YouTube, like our videos. Really appreciate it. Thank you guys all for listening, and uh, we'll be back soon. I'll see you guys next time. God bless.